invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been here a while now, but we are quickly coming to an end here as we will be closing out chapter 4. My wife is a teacher, as many of you know. Well, technically a math coach, I apologize. She's been in education for quite some time, and something that teachers know is that the way that someone learns best, the way to teach children and really people in general, is repetition. Repeat, 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 say it again, find different ways to say it, rephrase it, repackage it, but essentially you're saying the same thing until one day the light bulb comes on and you say, oh, I get it, two plus two is four. That's amazing. That's That's how teaching works. And no doubt, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows that full and well. As we see throughout this letter, he has revisited themes that he's already touched on. And what he's doing is rephrasing and repackaging different themes that he's already addressed, not for simply the sake of saying the same thing over and over because there's nothing else to say. No, but it's so that we understand what he's saying, so that we grasp it, so that we come to the end of chapter 4 and we say, wow, as the title of our sermon is today, there is indeed a peculiar joy in suffering for Christ. I use the word peculiar here on purpose. It means has two meanings. It can mean strange or unusual, but it can also mean particular and special. I think it is indeed both, because it is strange to have joy in the midst of suffering. But there is also a special kind of joy found in the midst of suffering for Christ. And as we will see today in our section Peter is going to revisit several themes that he's already addressed to remind his readers of this peculiar joy of suffering for the name of Christ. If you would, grab your Bible, stand with us as we read God's Word. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-19. through 19. This is the Word of the living God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls 
to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have sung your praises. And I pray that it was well received that for just a moment we were joining the chorus of heaven as they sung your praises. Lord, I pray that at this time that we would hear clearly from you and your word, that you would encourage us on where encouragement is needed and afflict us where affliction is needed, comfort us where that's needed, that your word would go forth this morning and accomplish your intended purpose by your spirit. I pray that as I stand here and preach your word, the meditations of my mind and the words of my mouth would be found pleasing in your sight. I pray that your word would be exalted and proclaimed clearly and faithfully today for the glory of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Our time today is going to be spent looking at six lessons regarding suffering for Christ. Six lessons regarding suffering for Christ. Our first, suffering for Christ is to be expected. Suffering for Christ is to be expected. Let's look at verse 12 once again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter has been writing to believers scattered abroad who are facing various levels and degrees of persecution. His aim has been to encourage them as they are being faced with so much suffering by reminding them of the faithfulness of God in saving them. We saw that at great length in chapter 1 and then even in chapter 2. In remembering God's sovereign hand in their salvation, they'll be reminded that He will sovereignly sustain them through all things, and they need only focus on being faithful sojourners as they walk through this wayward world. This is why we have seen the theme of suffering come up again and again and again in this letter. In fact, the word for suffering in the original appears 12 times times in these five chapters. Twelve times. This verse is in a sense connected here to what he wrote to them earlier in this chapter, back in chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 4, where he said, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The implication here is if you've armed yourself with the way of thinking that you will suffer for Christ's name, then you won't be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you. Thus, Peter issues the first of six imperatives in these seven verses. Six total imperatives in this section. The first one here is do not be surprised. He's Commanding, issuing an imperative, saying, don't be surprised. This is not surprising. Sometimes, though, it isn't so much the fact that suffering is taking place that is surprising. We can understand that that's supposed to happen. We live in a fallen world. 
We are light in the darkness. The darkness hates the light. But perhaps the specific event or even the intensity is what takes people by surprise in the midst of suffering. We see Peter here talk about that, of the intensity of suffering. The intensity of suffering. He says, fiery trial. The word here for fiery is only used two other times in the New Testament. Both of them are in Revelation, and both of them are in reference. It's translated as burning. It's in reference to the burning of judgment. It's also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. And there it is used to refer to a furnace. Specifically, a furnace used for purifying and pouring precious metals. On that note, to give us some insight of why he would use this language, gold requires a temperature of 1,946 degrees Fahrenheit in order to melt. That's just to get the gold to melt in the kiln. It takes a temperature increase up to at least 2,102 degrees Fahrenheit in order for it to be purified enough to be poured into a mold. And if it's poured too early at just the melting temperature of 1,946 degrees, it'll have too many impurities and it won't be malleable enough, leaving many imperfections in the metal after it hardens in the mold. But a skilled craftsman will turn up the heat to over 2,100 degrees so that the gold is more pure and it's more malleable and it can fill the desired mold much more easily and smoothly. What's the point of that? That God uses the melting pot of persecution, of affliction, of suffering, and various trials in this life to melt down His people, to pour them into the mold He has predestined for them to fill. What is that? That mold is, of course, the image of Christ. The image of Christ. And guess what? It takes many passes through the flames for us imperfect, sinful people to reach the desired level of purity where we are now malleable and we can fill the mold that God is wanting to pour us into. In other words, you are a precious metal in the hands of God Almighty. So don't be surprised when he has to turn up the heat to burn off the impurities in your life, to make you more pure and malleable in his hands. Beloved, do not view this as something strange happening to you. As he goes on to say, no, this is a certainty in the Christian life. That's what he reminds us of next, doesn't he? The certainty of suffering. The certainty of suffering. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised at this 
fiery trial. Instead, expect it. Jesus spoke very clearly, did He not? In John 16.33, when He said, In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. Peter would surely remember this, and undoubtedly early Christians were taught these things too. But still, the fiery trial comes, and it finds us surprised at its arrival. We speak out against lies, and we're surprised when our words aren't met with a warm welcome. We take a stand against sinfulness, and we're taken aback when people who love their sin no longer want to be our friend. We walk in the light, and we are shocked when the people in darkness don't love us. Peter says here, it's not a matter of if you will suffer persecution. It's a matter of when. When it comes upon you. Beloved, we ought to examine our lives then and ask ourselves if we've experienced these flames of persecution. And if the answer is no, no, we do not ever face any sort of social discomfort, any sort of slander or mistreatment on account of our life for Christ, then we can see clearly that we must be keeping our lamp under a lampshade and hiding it and keeping it hidden from people for the sake of being liked and comfort and ease in this life. Why? Perhaps specifically because we want to avoid the fiery trial of persecution. That sounds terrible. A fiery trial? That doesn't sound exciting. And we don't want to put ourselves up for open criticism in front of people that we love and even respect. In so doing, beloved, we not only avoid the flames of affliction, but listen, we also avoid the purification that takes place in those flames. That fire purifies you. We see him now see, talk about that. He shows us the purpose for suffering. The purpose for suffering. He says, test. When it comes upon you, why? To test you. Just as you test precious metals in the flames to test their purity, so the reason we are tested this way is to see our level of purity. It's to test our genuineness. Are you the real deal or not? Today, there is something known as deconstruction. It's happening largely in Christian celebrity world, Christian music artists, Christian, different Christian celebrities of various kinds. And they call it deconstruction. What it means is that they say, well, I don't really know if I believe anymore. I'm not really sure if I do believe. Here's what I really think about God. In other words, deconstruction is just a, a new trendy way of saying apostasy. They turn from the faith. And so many times when you listen to the story, you know what happened? Is some sort of suffering. It was that fire of affliction that caused them to be proven that they were not genuine believers. We see this in the parable of the four soils, don't we? There is a seed that falls among the rock. 
Jesus explains in Matthew 13.20 that the parable was in reference to those who receive the good seed of the gospel. He receives it with joy, this soil, this seed that falls on rocky ground. He receives it with joy, but he has no root in him. So he endures for a little while. And once tribulation and persecution arises, the text says, on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Do you see why these flames are necessary to test you? In Luke's account, in Luke 8, account, uh, that, that account of the parable, he writes there, instead of saying, instead of writing uh, the tribulation and persecution, he puts in times of testing that that seed proves that it was not genuine. Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial of persecution comes knocking on your door, but instead recognize that you are being tested. You're being tested to see if your faith is genuine. Are you going to fall away to the whims of the world? Or are you going to dig in even further and say, I believe in the Lord God Almighty? There's nowhere else for me to go. You have the words of eternal life. These afflictions have a way of revealing in us impurities and areas of our lives that we have not truly submitted and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. It reveals those impurities in us. Thus, the affliction becomes an opportunity not for us to fall away into depression and anxiety and frustration, but instead to recognize what is happening and say, Lord, your will be done. Purify me in this fire. Purify me in this fire. Suffering should not be a surprise for us as it is a certainty in the Christian life. And though it comes with a measure of intensity, it is for a profound purpose, accomplishing much in our sanctification. That's not all that it accomplishes, is it? Our second lesson today of suffering for Christ is suffering for Christ is an occasion for great joy. Look at verse 13 again. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This is the second imperative here of six in this passage. You know what it is? Rejoice. Isn't that something? We're commanded to rejoice? That's why so many have said throughout history that there's not really such a thing as an unhappy Christian. We rejoice in the Lord. We are so prone to be so surprised and taken aback by suffering that we will often find the idea of rejoicing to be downright impossible. This is why we always say things to each other like, you know, that's easy to say, but it's hard to do. You know why? It's because our focus and our thinking as humans is to look at the pain and the trial and the hardship and think, how could I possibly be expected to rejoice at this? My life's falling apart. 
Why, how could I possibly rejoice here? But the message all throughout Scripture is to not look at your problems. Look at your God. Don't look at the situation. Look at God. Be reminded that this trial, this test, it is sent, listen, by the loving hand of your Father. The loving hand of your Father. And therefore, it can be seen as an opportunity to be purified in these flames. So often we look at the fire itself and we think everything's going to burn. My whole life is burning to the ground. But from God's perspective, all that's burning down are the impurities of your life. The things that are not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Let me say as an aside, we, would, we are sorely mistaken, dangerously even mistaken, to think that just because we're a Christian, that every area of our life has been submitted to the Lord. Did you hear what I said? We would be sorely mistaken if we think that just because we're a Christian, that we have then, because of that, by default, submitted every area of our life to the Lord. That's what is proven in the flames of affliction. is to show you, you have not let go of this, let go or it's going to burn. Let go. And that's why Peter talks about in these fires, your faith is proven genuine. A faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Chapter 1, verse 7. So for that reason, we can rejoice in the middle of the affliction. Now let's be clear. Does that mean that we should never be sad? Does that mean when tragedy strikes, we're not allowed to grieve and mourn and be hurt? Well, certainly not. As we've been seeing in Sunday school, we're going through Psalm 119. I encourage you to join us because we see time and time again of the raw human emotion. We will feel deep, terrible things. But the point is to take it to the Lord. Take it to Him. And let Him heal those hurting parts. So it's not about the suffering itself. You losing your job or losing friends or family members. It's not the event itself that you rejoice at. Oh, I'm so glad my, my home burned in the fire. I'm so glad. No, of course not. That's fake. But what you rejoice in is what this will produce in you. That this is going to produce something in me that is more valuable than my home. Even if I lived in a billion dollar mansion, this affliction will produce something greater. Peter writes, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Some of your translations have to the degree or to the extent. But the idea is simply that we are to rejoice in the suffering in as much as we share in the sufferings of Christ. That tells us, first of all, that Christ suffered first. He suffered. Our Christ, precious Jesus, who we just sang about. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That Jesus. He suffered first. This theme has been seen all over this letter as well. That He suffered first. Leaving an example. 
And so we ought to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Throughout Scripture and throughout church history, we find that common theme that there is great joy and honor in suffering for Christ Jesus. Great joy and honor in suffering the same reproach that Christ suffered. Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you. So interesting. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted Christ Jesus, the Word who became flesh, how could we dare think that we would be spared from that? When we are persecuted for the Word of Christ, we are sharing in the same persecution that Christ Himself suffered and endured. Although not to the same extent, of course, because He was perfect and blameless. Thus, this is a cause to rejoice as we see that the persecutors are simply recognizing that you are a servant of Christ Jesus. Hallelujah! That my life is so evidently His that I am persecuted the same way that He was. Hallelujah! That we would all live that kind of life. Peter calls this an opportunity for rejoicing. But there's also cause here for even greater joy. Peter writes, That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. I love this. Some of your translations have rejoice with exultation or overjoyed or glad with exceeding joy. Clearly, this is joy to the superlative degree. He is using a superlative here that you are overflowing. You are just absolutely overcome with joy inexpressible at the revelation of Christ's glory. We see then yet another reminder from Peter that the end is soon to come. In case you didn't know this, despite what your eschatology may be this morning, Christ Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. And on that day, do you want to be found murmuring and griping about the suffering you're enduring? Or do you want Him to find you already joyful? Imagine then how much more joy there will be when Christ Jesus appears and you will be like Him for you shall see Him as He is. There will be joy inexpressible, my friends. Joy unthinkable. Joy unmatched on that day. So when Christ returns, you will either be living the kind of life that you're going to hide in terror at the revelation of His glory, or all of the pain and suffering of this life will turn suddenly to an overwhelming, inexpressible joy when you see His glory. And you know what? It will have all been worth it. It will have all been worth it. Do we ever think about these things as we are in the middle of great turmoil for Christ? Maybe you this morning 
are in the thick of it. Do you ever think to look at your hurt and pain and say, this is an opportunity for me to rejoice and be glad in the Lord? Or do you look at the thing that's going on and say, I just don't get it. This life is too hard. Why isn't God showing up yet? We read about that this morning in Psalm 119 as well. But we shouldn't allow the hurt and the pain to allow us to remain downcast. You might become downcast. Indeed you will. But don't stay there. That's where we lose. Is that we stay in the depression and anxiety and frustration. Instead, Christ Jesus and His Word is saying, I am offering you a peculiar joy if you would just look at me. If you would take your eyes off of this and turn your eyes upon Jesus. You thought your joy was going to be found in this world in your situation improving, in getting a better job, in having a pay raise, in a nicer car, or having great friends and family, the Word says, no, 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 no. Your joy's not here. Things might make you happy, of course. But you know where your joy is? is right here. You know where your joy is? It's at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your joy is not hingent upon anything, my friends, that happens in this lifetime. And that is proven by the fact that we're told to rejoice in suffering. We're told over and over and over and over and over. You want to have great joy? Do you want to be one of those people who's just always full of joy? You can have it even in the midst of suffering. And if you have great joy in the midst of suffering, you'll even have more when Christ returns. If you're in here this morning and the idea of joy in suffering is just too difficult for you to grasp, I want to encourage you to take a long look at where your hope is. Where is your hope? If your hope is in this life, you will be overtaken, not just by persecution, but by any and every kind of difficulty. It'll steal your joy. It'll ruin your day. It'll make you stop going to church, stop reading your Bible, stop praying, stop fellowshipping, stop experiencing the joy of the Lord. But if you would set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, if you'll remember that you have an inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled and it is unfading and it is kept in heaven for you, then you'll be able to look at this, the difficulties of this life, no matter how severe they are, namely persecution in our context for the name of Christ, but you'll be able to look at all of them and you can rejoice because your hope isn't in, in anything in this world anyway. Take it. Take the house. Take the job. Take it all. I have Jesus. I have everything that I need. In fact, this suffering is only going to mean even greater levels of joy for you when this life is over. The third lesson is suffering for Christ is evidence of the Spirit upon you. 
He says in verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Just layer upon layer upon layer that Peter is adding here, isn't he? The word insulted here doesn't simply imply that they're being called names. But it is also meaning that they are being reviled or reproached for the name of Christ. It can also carry with it physical mistreatment. Remember, Peter said that this trial that they were enduring was fiery. Some of it was intense because of the physical aspect, no doubt. Nero burned Christians, called them Roman candles. He burned Christians in open public. But the more common experience was that they were being hated by the world around them. He clarifies once more that this suffering they are enduring is for the name of Christ. I will repeat, and so it ought to be, for they hated Christ first. They hated Him first. The world hated Christ so much, they crucified Him. He was murdered in cold blood in the light of day and put to open shame and humiliation. Have you ever thought about these things? So why would these believers think it would be any different for them? If they crucified the King of glory, the Word become flesh, the incarnate Son of God, how much more can we be expecting to Experience those same things. Beloved, do not be surprised when the world hates you because they see your life being molded after the likeness of Christ Jesus. Any suffering we must endure for the precious name of the beloved Son of God is actually a sign of us being blessed, Peter says. He says, if you suffer for Him, you are blessed. If you suffer for the name of Christ, you are blessed. We are experiencing God's divine favor when we suffer for Christ. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What does that mean? This is a difficult phrase at first glance because it almost implies that there's two different spirits that rest upon you. But we know that's not true because we know as Christians, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. He indwells every believer. So then, it's much better to understand this as a way of saying the glorious Spirit of God. This Spirit is of God and possesses glory. He is glorious. And that Spirit is resting upon you. In other words, it is evidence that you are truly a child of God. If you suffer for the name of Christ, you're blessed because it's evidence that you belong to Him. This trial has not caused you to recant your belief in Him, but instead you are steadfast in your belief in Christ, thus indicating that you are indeed indwelt by the glorious Spirit of God. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You know what he says? Rejoice and be glad. Just like he says here in 1 Peter, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see what Jesus says? Rejoice because it means something better later. Not here. Blessing isn't walking out to a a 2022 Mercedes Benz. Sure, every good and perfect thing comes from the Lord. But that's not primarily what the Scriptures mean by blessing. Do you want to really compare a nice car and a good life on this world compared to imperishable riches in the next life? It's peanuts. It's not even peanuts. It's the shells of peanuts on the floor of Texas Roadhouse. That's how worthless it is next to knowing Christ. People have always been persecuted for being the people of God. If you find that you are being persecuted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because it is is an indication that you are standing in a long line of the people of God who are awaiting great rewards in heaven. The fourth lesson, suffering for Christ is not the same as suffering for evil. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. The same way that Jesus said when they are uttering things falsely about you. Here is the third imperative in this section. The imperative to not be found suffering because of wrongdoing. This is another theme that Peter has already addressed several times, hasn't he? In chapter 2, verse 20, he said, What credit is it if when you sin you're beaten for it, you endure? In chapter 3, verse 17, he said, It is better to suffer for doing good than for evil. This also goes along with the running theme throughout this letter of living a righteous and holy life and to put off the old nature with all of its sinful desires. We can see from this imperative needing to be mentioned again, not just once or twice, but thrice. It's a good word. It needs to be mentioned and revisited again because even these early Christians were not perfect, they were sinful people. Did you know that? That all Christians throughout history have just been sinful people who God has used mightily. And that's what we see here. They also had a sinful nature, just like us, that made them prone to wandering away from a life of holiness. It also shows us that even in these early days, people would also be prone to turning any kind of suffering and persecution into the blessed kind of suffering, the suffering where we're doing so for the name of Christ. That's not true at all, is it? Not all all suffering is the kind mentioned here. We see from his list of four categories that are not meant to be exhaustive, by the way, but instructive, that it is entirely possible and even right and just, that we would suffer for doing wrong. That we would suffer 
punishment when we do things that are wrong. A murderer and a thief are perhaps the more extreme and even more obvious examples of sin that deserve punishment. I mean, no one's going to argue there, right? If you murder someone or steal from someone, you will go to prison. And that will not be Christian suffering. Do you understand? That will not be Christian suffering. That will be suffering because you sinned egregiously. And there's no particular honor in that. He then includes as third in the list, as an evildoer. This just refers to doing wrong in general. Don't suffer for doing bad things, in other words. If you're punished or you experience some other kind of suffering because of your sinfulness, this is not suffering for Christ. This is suffering, receiving consequences on account of your own sinfulness. That means that not all suffering that comes upon you, we are to receive immediately as, oh, I'm suffering for Christ, I'm this martyr for the Lord. We want to examine ourselves first. We want to see, have I been living for Christ? Or is this God's discipline on me? There's a marked difference. And the last word on the list is an interesting one. The ESV says a meddler, <clears throat> excuse me, it is a busybody. It's someone who is always in other people's business. In other words, if you're just always messing around in the affairs of others, if you have no concept of social etiquette, and then people start to make you an outcast and they don't want to surround themselves with you, this is not suffering for Christ. This is suffering because of you and your behavior. What Peter has in mind here is to say, again, that not all suffering is suffering for Christ. When we misbehave, when we treat people poorly, or even when we are in everyone's business, we are to expect some measure of suffering that is not the same as suffering for the name of Christ. Instead, these are matters in which we ought to take our consequences then and learn from our sins. Fifth lesson, suffering for Christ is an opportunity to glorify God. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He reiterates here that he is speaking about what, uh, what he is speaking about is suffering specifically for being a Christian. Now it's likely that the term Christian, when it first was used in early church history, that it was actually a pejorative. It was actually a way of criticizing people. But shortly, shortly after that, they began to wear the badge proudly. And in reality, it is a label that is to be worn with great honor. If you're a, uh, the President of the United States or the King of England or whatever title you may hold here on earth, if you are a Christian, that is your greatest claim to honor. That you belong to Christ Jesus, not any title of this world. This is why we find our fourth imperative here where he says, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to be called by the name of Christ. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, you're one of those 
holier-than-thou kind of people. Oh, you're, you're, you're Miss Bible Thumper. This should not be an opportunity for you to feel ashamed, but instead to rejoice that you would be known by that name. That you could be dare, dare be associated with the name of Christ Jesus. Or as Peter says, this is an opportunity for you to glorify God in that name. In other words, glorify God that you bear that name, knowing that you bear that name because of Him. Not because of anything in you, but because He in His own sovereign good will saw it fit, it pleased Him to save you, to make you His. Don't hide it. Don't be afraid or ashamed to admit that you belong to Christ. Don't hide your light under a lampshade. But instead, rejoice that you can bear that name and happily then, happily bear any reproach that comes along with it from those who are lost in sin. There's a great example of this in Acts chapter 5. You can go read it on your own. Where the apostles are brought into the council and they're questioned once the council decides they're not going to be able to punish them, they say, you're not allowed to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. They beat them, and they send them on their way. And do you know what the text says that the apostles' reaction was? They fell into a great depression. No, that's not what happened. They got very angry. No, that's not what happened. Do you know what happened? They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Oh, that God would raise up Christians like this today, that we would be happy to be counted worthy to suffer for God. Sign me up that we would have those kinds of Christians. You want to see the world changed? Have that sort of mindset about you. That it doesn't matter what it costs me. I will proclaim Christ crucified until they take my life. That's how the world is changed. Sixth, suffering for Christ is God's purifying judgment on His people. What? Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of our God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Two very bizarre sounding verses. But these two verses teach us that the fire of God's judgment is meant to purify His children while punishing His enemies. The fire of God's judgment purifies His children while He punishes His enemies. This is an astonishing turn, it appears at least, because this whole time we're hearing about blessing and rejoicing, and now we're talking about judgment. What happened? And how, how we are, we're supposed to rejoice because we're being judged? Is that, is that what we're rejoicing about? Is our suffering judgment upon us? What about Christ and His sacrifice? I thought that He took all of the judgment that you and I deserved. I thought that Romans chapter 8 said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. All of those things are certainly true. And 
it is also true that God will judge his people. That God will judge his people. That's what the text says. That it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's an Old Testament illusion, meaning God's people. Why? Because there are times when we can absolutely be walking in a manner not worthy of our calling. There is a time in our life that we are walking in a manner that's not worthy of our calling. Thankfully, when we are in Christ, His blood covers us so that we do not experience final condemnation. But as we are living in a manner contrary to our calling, He does issue discipline to us. Being a Christian is not a license to sin. As we saw in verse 15, being a Christian does not mean that by default, everything you do in your life is glorifying to God. No, you need to be sanctified. I need to be sanctified. And guess how long that process takes? Until you die or Jesus returns. That's a long, long time, Lord willing. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us very clearly that God's will for us is our sanctification. And this is what, is what God's judgment on His people is for. It's not to eternally condemn us lest, unless we don't belong to Him, but it is to reveal and show us where we do not line up according to the image of Christ, and there is discipline for us. I think Malachi 3 is very helpful here to get a grasp on this. <clears throat> he says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, but who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Listen, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. These two verses in 1 Peter about God's judgment mean that the Lord is going to sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify his holy priesthood, which we saw in chapter 2 is who? Us. Not a trick question. It's us. We are His holy priesthood now. When you and I are out of line with what God has written, He will indeed discipline us. Listen, it is absolutely true that you cannot and will not lose your salvation. But the reason why that is true is because God Himself will refine and purify you. God Himself will see to it that you are refined and purified, and He will use fire to do so. I love the way A.W. Tozer puts it. Above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in His Son while He disciplines and chastens and purges us that we may be partakers of His holiness. That we may be partakers of His holiness. The fire of judgment is meant to sanctify 
his people. Christian, you are as justified in the eyes of God right now, this moment, as you can ever possibly be. Even when you are in heaven, you will not be more justified in his eyes than you already are, for you have trusted in Jesus. Yet, your path to sanctification is going to be an uphill battle until you cross over into glory. There will always be more sin to kill. So when God judges us in this lifetime and in the next, we stand before Him as His children and not as His enemy. Then when He judges us as it is done for, in love for the sake of our purification, as Malachi shows us, then we can continue to bring God's sacrifices in righteousness. I want us to look at the very last statement that Peter makes here. It's a summarizing statement. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter closes out this chapter with a sort of summary of everything he's been saying. It also serves as a final word of application. And so, let us close with a few points of application. I know the hour is late, but let's look at these carefully because they are so helpful. First, when you suffer, remember that God is sovereign. He says, according to God's will. Nothing at all in all of the universe in any dark corner of our lives at any time is outside of the jurisdiction of the sovereign rule of Almighty God. Everything is under His total control, and that includes our suffering. If we are suffering for the name of Christ, we can remember that God Himself sent this fiery trial to test us. Second, when you suffer, entrust your whole life to the Lord. That's what he says, entrust their souls. Since you are suffering, according to the sovereign hand and plan of God, entrust yourself to Him. Know that He is in control of all things. And He does not expect you to find a way to end the suffering, but to simply trust Him in the midst of it. Third, when you suffer, remember that God is faithful. He says, entrust their souls to a faithful Creator, we can know that He has not left us in the midst of that suffering, but that He is right there with us. R.C. Sproul said that it is in the morning, M-O-U-R-N, that we discover the peace of God that passes understanding. Fourth, when you suffer, remember to continue on in obedience. That's what he ends with saying. And trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Beloved, let us never use our suffering as an opportunity to abandon God's path for our lives. But instead trust that it is on the very path of obedience that we will continue to experience the divine favor of God even in the midst of the worst suffering. Let's stand. All of our suffering in the name of Christ is a great cause to rejoice. So then, how do we apply it? We do it by the power of God. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for writing clearly and repeating things so that we can learn them and see them over and over and and apply them to our lives. Please empower us to do so for the glory of Christ and for the good of your people. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.